loose, but it's good. Yeah, it is. Like, I think the ideal thing is if I just got on my piano behind me, uh-huh. played it live mm-hmm. while we were waiting for everyone to come on. Yes. That might be a thing. I need to figure that out. Well, I mean, you know, I got a little, like... I know, look at you! Yeah, so we can we can totally jam, yeah. A little dueling pianos. Yes. I didn't know you played piano, by the way. Why didn't you ever tell me this? I, I don't know, you never talked about it. I actually, reluctantly played piano for eight years, starting in first grade. Oh, wow. And took lessons, like a good daughter should. Uh-huh. That's and funny. Then, I'm totally the opposite of you, because I was, when the pandemic started, I've been playing guitar since I was 13, and I kind of, okay. you know, when you play an instrument, at least for me, for a long time, I kind of get in a rut, like you get stuck playing it a certain way, and then I pick, picked up this thing during the, PM, P, the pandemic, and I just learned it by ear. I can't read music or anything like that, but I just kind of figured it out. Oh my gosh, so you and I are complete opposites as we start Mm -hmm. our our next culture cast. So hi, everybody. Welcome to our Groundhog Day culture cast, but not with a groundhog thing. I mean, we've got Joshua Jordison on, this amazing human being who we will get to know in the next 30-ish plus minutes to talk about. But we were just talking about music, and it's just so funny that you kind of like played into it, literally during the pandemic. And for me, I'm actually grateful, although I wasn't when I was in first grade through eighth grade and having to play piano. I know one of my friends is out there who knew me growing up. Like I would have to practice piano at least an hour every day. It Mm. was kind of crazy. And so I think that's what I resented. And I'll, you know, I'll own this and then let's talk about you. My second piano teacher quit me. (laughs) She quit me. Oh my God. Yeah, she's just like, clearly your heart's not in this. This um, is like turning into culture therapy cast. I like this. Exactly, culture therapy cast. Yeah. But mm-hmm. it says a little bit about, you know, this Filipino culture that I grew up in where you also need to have a side talent. And so um, anyway, I think when you roll into music naturally, I think it's probably a better thing. And I also am grateful for music because I think when you're introduced to music into your life and it's part of how how you roll and how you vibe, I think it just opens up more networks, right? More thinking, mm-hmm. more creativity, et cetera. So that's why we're right. all here. Let's I could not agree more. Yeah, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but I think, wasn't it Beethoven who said something like, music is the only true universal language that we all understand? I think that's right. That's right. Something like that, yeah. Well, um, I'm going to say hi to everybody. I'm seeing all these people say hi in the comments. Oh, my goodness. It's hi such guys. a good mix between really dear, dear lifetime friends. I'm sure the same for you, Joshua, as well as nerding out a little bit. There's some CEOs and some executives that I've worked with over the past couple of decades. And I'm loving seeing this chat, everyone saying hi and saying hello to each other. So everyone, if you don't already know Joshua, my friend, please meet Joshua Jordison. He is my next amazing guest on this culture cast as we talk about how we create culture. And um, I'm going to just intro you really quickly, but then let's talk about you. Joshua Jordison, you are the co-founder um, uh, and the CEO of this thing called the Human Gathering. Just really quickly, I know people say they've heard about it. Mm-hmm. High level, what is it? And let's talk about sure. you. Yeah, I mean, the Human Gathering is a private network for very ambitious, successful, well-connected people who want to have 
really authentic relationships and support each other's ambitions, which I think is, I mean, really more important now than it's ever been after we're all coming out of this pandemic, right? We're all kind of trying to get back on track. Um, it's something that I created after having been a part of a lot of different private networks and clubs and, you know, super fancy, bougie, invite-only events. I worked in the music industry for a long time. What makes us different is that we're the only private network of any kind that I'm aware of with members of our caliber that actually screens people for things like integrity and character before we allow them in. And there's no way to skip that process, right? I mean, you could be the, I don't know, CEO of Coca-Cola, like, congratulations, I'm super happy for you. But that doesn't mean you can you can join us, right? Every other private network or conference or community that's out there, basically all they care about is, are you relevant and cool and can you afford the fee? And that's it, right? We're very yeah. different. So that's what we're all about. And then, you know, we also try to spend some time solving some of the world's biggest problems for fun, because I've found that if you can do that, you know, and, and we give access people to a lot of really cool once in a lifetime experiences based on those things, it's a great way to bond and build authentic relationships, in my opinion. I love it. I mean, we'll jump into that. But before we jump into all of that, let's talk about you. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm so thankful that I had the chance to meet you. And it was actually pre-pandemic. And I'll be honest with you, and I think you know this amongst my friends, too, that you've just been a great lifeline and just this beacon of light and hope. But I also want to talk about like how how you grew up. I know you're a native LA SoCal dude. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. I think people need to know kind of your story and sure. why is that and how this kind of led you in, into doing good things in the world? Sure. I mean, you, we want to go deep right away. We can. Yeah, let's do it. I, I'm happy to do that. Um, yeah, I'm a native Angelino, right? I grew up in Los Angeles. And as you said, you and I have so many, uh, it was when we met, I was kind of like, how is it possible it's taken us this long, right? Because we just had dozens and dozens and dozens of mutual friends but I, I was not, um, I wasn't born into this, this world, right? These circles that you and I mm -hmm. frequent. Um, I grew up in a rough part of Los Angeles, a city that was, uh, you know, very economically depressed, lots of challenges. And uh, I think the one thing I had going for me was incredible parents. You know, my mom and dad still married to this day. They're, they're just the best people. You know, they really gave my sister and I this incredible foundation of unconditional love. But apart from that, it wasn't great. You know, poverty, I think there are a lot of challenges with it. When you grow up in poverty, you, you kind of think whatever your experience is, is just normal, right? You think yeah. that everybody has to buy plastic bags to put them around their cereal and all your food in the pantry because it's infested with roaches. You think that everybody drinks powdered milk because, you know, they're nobody, you don't even have regular milk. You just add water and you drink that, or, you know, you mix it half and half when things are good. Um, so, I mean, that was all, you know, kind of run in the mill, I think poverty stuff, but there were certain things that happened, um, to my family and to me at a really young age during my formative years, I guess you could say, mm -hmm. I think explains me as a human being Yep. And just for the sake of brevity. I'll just share one. Um, when I was seven, you know, neighborhood we lived in, uh, was very gang infested, drug infested, things like that. And I, uh, one particular neighbor we had, uh, <laughs> they were an interesting family. They manufactured drugs. They sold drugs. I'm not talking about like your run of the mills, you know, slinging weed on a corner, right? But hard stuff like meth and stuff like that. And uh, one of their kids went to prison for building a pipe bomb to give you an idea of like what this family was like. Their, the mother and father used to have fist fights out in the middle of the street at like one o'clock in the morning. It was absolutely insane. And 
my dad, you know, my, my parents are very opposite of this. They, they've never done drugs. They're very straight laced. My dad was kind of anti-drug and he ran this after school program two blocks away for, you know, just to give the kids in the area a place to go because he grew up here. That's the other thing to understand is this was a multi-generational poverty thing. I grew up in the exact same bedroom as my father. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Same place. He just never, never got out, never left. But he was, he was at this, this place doing this after school program. And every single time the police were called on this particular neighbor, he just kind of assumed it was my dad, you know, because they were so juxtaposed and opposite. Mm -hmm. And um, so one night he decided he had had enough and uh, you know, he hired two gang members. We found out many years later to go over there and try and kill my dad um, when I was seven. So I woke up to my dad as a seven-year-old kid with a gunshot wound in our living room. You know, I mean, my sister, three years younger, thank goodness, she slept through this. So we're, she, we're very different people. Let's just yeah. say that our personalities are very different. She's amazing, but we're so different. And, uh, you know, we didn't find out for years that the neighbor had done this murder attempt. So all I knew from age seven to my teen years was somebody out there wants my father dead and they're, we're completely helpless. There's nothing I can do, certainly nothing I can do about it as a 12-year-old kid. But apparently there's nothing my parents can do about this either because we're still living in the same place all these years later. So that, I, I think, kind of lit a fire under me to lift my entire family out of poverty. And yeah. when I went about that, I, I somehow knew, and I don't know how I knew this as a 13, 14-year-old kid, was that my parents' main issue, obviously you've got to fix your finances to get out of poverty, but it seemed like the real problem was when this happened, you know, the police investigated it, but kind of, you know, this is yeah. a bad, bad neighborhood. So the fact that my father didn't die, the police were like, okay, well, we've got, we've got other problems. You know, we got bigger fish to fry. So there wasn't anything my family could do about that because their network was filled with people, not bad people, but just, just as destitute as they were, if not significantly mm -hmm. more. My parents were actually like the people in the neighborhood that, and all their friends looked to them for help. So I wanted to fix that. And I decided, well, uh, I like people. People seem to like me for whatever reason, generally speaking. And I hear that 20 miles, you know, up the five freeway from where I am, there's this thing called the music industry. And maybe if I can get involved in that somehow and meet, as they say, all the right people and right. just focus on nothing else until age 30. Don't worry about monetizing. Don't worry about making money. Just build relationships with the most powerful people in the industry. Maybe at some point, I can do anything I want and I can become financially successful and lift my whole family out of poverty. And so that's what I did. I mean, I went. I think that's just so yeah. crazy, though. So think about mm -hmm. that. Like you're living in the hood, literally. Yeah. By the mm -hmm. way, thank you for saying that your dad. I mean, you, you said this earlier. You love yeah. your mom and dad and they're, they're great figures in your life. But thank God that he got well after that. So first yeah. of all, but then secondly, yeah, to close. not only to only know the four walls around you and literally I didn't realize it was generational mm -hmm. to have kind of that, I'll call it a pipe dream because it is right. People right. moved to Southern California because they want to be in entertainment and they're mm -hmm. going to be whatever, right. An artist, a, an yeah. actor, actor or singer or whatever. How did you even know to do that? Come on, dude. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's a hard question to answer for me because I just sort of followed my gut and, and my guts very rarely steered me wrong. I, I just started where I could start, right? I had a friend who lived in a nicer area of LA, um, Arcadia, if you guys know where that is. Oh, yeah. And he knew about this thing called the California Philharmonic Orchestra, which is based in San Marino and does classical music concerts at the LA Arboretum, Walt Disney Concert Hall, the Pasadena Civic, which back then was where 
all of the American Idol episodes were recorded. Of course, I knew nothing about classical music in that kind of neighborhood. You don't even know what classical music is. You're like, what are you talking about? Like, is that like a different type of classic rock? What is this? But I, I went and I volunteered as a 15 year old kid at some of these outdoor classical music concerts that the Cal Phil did. And for years, it was just picking up trash. I mean, what else are you going to have a 15 year old kid do? Right. But as I got older, I kind of stuck around and I think they saw how hungry I was in my work ethic and they hired me on as I got older. And, you know, one of the things I love about the music industry, and this might not be true for other industries, but if you're willing to work hard and you're creative and you have any kind of talent whatsoever, even if it's just something like what my talent was, which was finding cool artists before anyone knew who they were, somehow knowing, okay, this band, this artist is going to be a big deal if they work for it, putting them in front of the right people and then stepping back and watch the magic happen. That was really all I had. I mean, I'm a musician too, but I, I have enough self-awareness to know that I wasn't going to be yeah. you know, a professional musician or anything like that. I can't sing to save my life. So it was about the business side of things. And I just went from one opportunity to the next. I mean, if you want, it's kind of, I can go through the whole timeline from like age, you know, 21 through 25, which I is really like- I think you should because I think it's fascinating how yeah. it's like, yeah, Cal Phil, mm -hmm. but then you're like groundbreaking on a lot of the, you know, music scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, Cal Phil was cool. I, I learned a lot about stage and production management and I got an opportunity to learn how to produce events for up to maybe 3000 people at the LA Arboretum, these outdoor events, which they don't do them anymore. Now they do them at the Santa Anita racetrack, totally different venue. But back then that's where it was. And I took this knowledge and, and I found the indie sort of hipster music scene in Echo Park and Silver Lake. And I figured out this, this is when I was 21, right? Yeah. I figured out that Monday nights for some reason were free which was great because I could afford free, right? Yeah. And it turned out that those were the residency nights. Of course, I didn't know this at all. Residencies, for people who don't know, that's when the up and coming artists in the area, you know, they play every single week and they get cool artists to come and perform and open for them. And that's how they break in those scenes. At least that's how it was back then at venues like, these don't exist anymore, but like Spaceland, the Bootleg yeah. Theater, you know, these types of places, anything Mitchell Frank is involved in, shout out to Mitchell. Um, that's where I got my start. And what I noticed was there were these people standing at the back of the room like this with their arms crossed. And I kept seeing these people over and over again at a bunch of different venues. They would never talk to anybody. They would never stay for more than five minutes. And they didn't really look like they were having a good time. So I was like, who the heck are these people? So I, I just went up to them and talked to them. And it turned out that those were the A&R people, right? The people that go out and find artists, yeah. music supervisors, managers. And so I, I, started to get to know these people and build relationships. And then I noticed that a lot of these venues weren't doing anything on Sunday nights or Wednesday nights. So I went to these owners or the managers and I basically said, listen, like, what's your worst night at this venue when you can barely justify opening the doors because you don't hit anywhere near your bar tab and nobody comes. And they would always say, well, Sundays and Wednesdays. And I was about 22 when I figured this out. And I said, look, if, if you'll give me the opportunity to bring out some cool bands and artists, you can keep the entire bar tab. I don't care. I don't want a percentage, but let me charge like five bucks at the door cash. And I keep all of that. And that's how I started. I mean, I started Smart. with, yeah, this venue called Three Clubs. I don't even think it's around anymore in like a bad part of Hollywood that had a capacity of maybe 75 people. And so much cool stuff came out of that. Like a lot of cool artists. We broke so many different artists over the years, um, ended up doing every Sunday night. At Cinespace, if anybody remembers Cinespace, um, Bardot, Hemingway's, like 
the standard hotel rooftop downtown, which is also yeah. gone now, which I'm super sad about. But I did this from like age 21 to, you know, 26, roughly. The big thing that happened for me that, that made me, you know, the big break, right, was meeting this guy when I was 23 named Eric Garcetti. Um, this was, you know, former mayor of Los Angeles. Now yeah. I think he's the ambassador to India or something. Uh, back then, he was just a, a guy, just Eric, right? And of course, I didn't know who his dad was. When you grow up in a bad neighborhood, you don't know about who Gil Garcetti is and yeah. all his involvement. No clue. So I got to know him. He was on the city council. My friends and I had an idea for a music festival. I was the only one with any actual production experience in terms of large events. So we got together. Eric helped us close down Myra Avenue, if anyone knows where that is, in Silver Lake, in between Sunset and Santa Monica. We put up, you know, two outdoor stages, used El Cid, great venue, as an indoor stage. 60 bands. I honestly don't even know how many food trucks we have, but I know it was more than bands. It was crazy. We charged five bucks and, you know, we... We took a risk and I thought maybe a couple thousand people, but 30,000, more than 30,000 people came to that festival. It was called the Silver Lake Jubilee. And I was, you know, 23 and a half when we did this. Wow. And I think that this is another great thing about the music industry. If, if you do something like that, you pull that off when you're 23, people tend to notice. And I started getting invited to some of the right parties, right? Some of the right events, met some of the more of the right people. And I was just kind of always willing to show up and look stupid. You know, I, I remember, okay. yeah, I, this is a great advice for people. Don't be afraid if you don't know what you're doing in networking or meeting people to, to look like an idiot. I, I looked like an idiot so many times. And I'll, I'll, this is one of the funniest stories I like to tell people. I was invited to this amazing uh, charity gala at this record producer's house in Brentwood in a gated community. And I remember back then I had a terrible, I think did awful car, barely ran. And so I parked, of course, like four, four blocks yeah. away from the house, didn't want anyone to see my car. I remember walking up to this house and thinking, oh my God, that mailbox is nicer than the entire house I grew up in. What am I even doing here? But I just, I went anyway and met some people. This whole thing was to honor Clive Davis, the record producer. Of course, I didn't know who Clive was. Sure. I wasn't the smartest back then, I was a kid. So I didn't research who this person was. I was just kind of trying to go from one event to the next. So I see this older gentleman with these cool, like kind of fogged out glasses standing in the corner. Someone had just finished speaking to him. No one was talking to him. I went up, introduced myself, and I said, hey, what brings you out to this event? And that was actually Clive Davis. Clive Davis. And he, yeah, and he looked at me, and he was like, he just started laughing and, you know, introduced me to his son, Doug. And I, back then, you know, as a 24-year-old, I, I used to get carded at movie theaters. I looked so young. I didn't have any facial hair or anything. I'm not sure I could get away with that now as a 36-year-old man. But back then, you know, I, I did. And I just kept doing this over and over again. And then, my gosh, I mean... My friends and I, um, the scene we were a part of, so many artists broke out of that. Like Bruno Mars broke out of like our whole scene and Skrillex and Christina Perry and Foster the People and Young the Giant. I mean, there was one year when I think four of the artists we were sort of involved in helping break yeah. all won Grammys the same year. It was nuts. And um, yeah, that's that's what I did in the music industry. And um, I'm only my only real direct involvement in music now is really with I like to support City of Hope um, through their MEI committee. Music and Entertainment Industry Committee. And, you know, that committee, uh, I'm most responsible for almost none of this in terms of percentage, yeah. but that committee has raised like $160 million for Amazing. cancer research, you know, and diabetes research. So it's I a mean, great industry. So many things that I'm sure people are taking away from the conversation. And I see Paul Pinto, I see you, and you uh, use the word humility for Joshua. I think there's such a lesson to be learned. So first of all, being so naive, right? Mm -hmm. Yet so driven. 
to actually raise your family out of poverty. And, you know, the key takeaway that I have is like this relationship orientation. And I wonder now, because the world is so different today and now artists can break out differently because of everything virtually, et cetera. But what I worry about for this next Mm. generation coming up, like the young Joshua's who are not even 20 yet, is that skill of relationship building, which Mm. yes, this is all fine. We can all kind of see each other, but there's a magic when, right? There's kind of that human connection that is happening in real life, in real time. And so, and those moments that you may not feel or you will miss because you can't feel it. And so um, it's astounding when you talk about like all of these amazing people that you didn't know you were meeting. Right. And Mm -hmm. I think that's such a good lesson to learn around. I love that idea of just don't be afraid to act stupid, which is the opposite of don't be the dude or the dudette in the room thinking that you know it all. Right. Because no one wants to talk to that person. That's right. um, It's crazy just to hear all of that goodness that has happened. And the other thing, too, is you're like, let me just go figure this out and not Mm -hmm. worry about monetizing any of this. Right. It's just more about the learning, the experience, the connections, Mm -hmm. which then can build into greatness sometime later on. I think about that. You and I talk about this a lot. It's karma. Like when you just are out there living your life and putting your best foot forward for yourself, for your family and for others, then good things will in return happen at some point in your life. So yes, that's kind of that's the story of who you are, my friend. Seriously. Like it's insane to hear that. So let's let's I'm going to fast forward. Let's go back to the human gathering, because, you know, there are a few who have reached out and like, you know, I've heard about the human gathering. I don't know how you get into the human gathering. Um, and I want to pick back up on what you said earlier about there is one thing, which is there's in all these other social kind of networks that that have a membership. There's no way that they screen for character. So let's mm-hmm. talk more about that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, do you do and, that? And, yeah. And I'll, I'll kind of like dovetail this back to where we, where we left off in the story as yeah. well. When, when you're in a position where you meet everybody and I mean, everybody who can, actually controls the music industry, by the way, it's not a massive group of people. I always like to tell people who, who aren't familiar with the industry, the people who actually hold all the power, you could probably shove them all into a mid-sized Starbucks and you might have to like push, but, but they would fit right? It's hundreds and hundreds of people, not thousands. So when you get access to these people, there's this weird, almost like relationship osmosis thing that happens, if that makes any sense. And you just meet everybody. I mean, you meet the biggest CEOs, celebrities, heads of state, royal families, investors, everybody wants a piece of the music industry. Everybody. It's this very alluring, sexy thing. And so you get access to the craziest people you can possibly imagine. And you also get invited to join all of these private clubs, right? Private networks. I mean, pretty much any private club, any any invite-only event, any uh, community you can think of, I've been a part of all of them over the years, invited to be so. And they're amazing, right? They're awesome at bringing together super cool people, but nobody vets for things like integrity and character. And for mm-hmm. me, being a connector, right? Like, And like you and I have been doing this a lot recently, Marisa, when I meet somebody, if I really like the person, I have to introduce them to my friends. Like it's it's not a choice for me. It's like breathing. If I can't do that, I get really unhappy. And so I would assume naively, because you have to remember my background, yeah. that if somebody was a member of one of these private networks, that 
you know, they must be a, a decent person, right? They must at least not be the type of person who likes and enjoys hurting others. That, at least I thought that would be the case. And that's true for most people. But through these types of networks, I met a lot of the, um, I call them the Harvey Weinsteins of the world. These are people who, Yikes. yeah, like, and I met Harvey too. And I mean, Harvey raped one of my friends. I, I found out years oh later, my God. Um, but like, yeah, there's a lot of them. And I think that's in all industries, right? It's not just entertainment, yeah. uh, lots of industries. These are people who amass wealth and power for the expressed purpose of taking advantage of others. And so me being the connector that I am, I'd meet these people. They also tend to be very adept at hiding who they are. And so I'd introduce them to my cool friends. And, you know, I'm the type of person that once I make a couple introductions for people, people will generally say something like, listen, next person you want to introduce me to, just do it. Like carte blanche. Don't even ask me anymore. I've only met amazing people through you. So they trust me. So I'd, I'd, they'd introduce these sort of Harvey Weinstein-esque characters to them, unfortunately, sometimes before I realized who they were. And then six months later, I'd get a call, you know, from one of my mm -hmm. best friends and trusted relationships. And they'd say something like, you know, I'm not mad at you, man, but just so you know, this person really screwed me over. They, they stole my IP. They're defaming me. It's messing up my best relationships. This happened to me one too many times. And so I realized, oh, no being a part of all these private networks is actually bad for me in my particular yeah. position. So I extricated myself from most of them. And look, I, I'm not against being a part of these things. Like I, I'm still a part of some of them. It's just not where I spend the majority of my time because none of them screen for integrity and character. It's just not part of their business model. It's also really hard. And I went on a journey for a couple of years after leaving to try to figure out, is there, is this already exist, right? Is there a private network out there that screens people for integrity and character and they figured it out because if there isn't this might be impossible and, yeah. and you know I, I went i went and looked for it for a long time and I, I just couldn't find it even today eight years after we started the human gathering nobody else does this and i think it's because it's hard right it's very labor intensive and yeah. it, there's no perfect solution it's sort of 80 percent art 20 percent science so we just decided if we don't try to do this it's just never going to exist right so what we do is we reach out to people, right? I mean, sometimes our current members will refer people, but we have a very, very specific process for how we find people. And it all, it all really starts with me. You know, I've got yeah. a very robust, well-curated, if you will, LinkedIn network for as long as LinkedIn has been around, I've been taking care of it. And um, I don't know how many connections I have, but I think I have maybe 27,000 followers now, something like that. So it's pretty robust. And it's in the top 1% of all of LinkedIn. If you log into LinkedIn's backend, they tell you this now, which is kind of cool. So my team logs into my LinkedIn account and every week they go through people, right? Hundreds, yeah. hundreds of people. They look for three criteria. The first one is I and some of our current members have to have multiple connections with this person, right? And not two, but at least dozens. That's yeah. the first thing. That does not mean that we'll have someone on our team reach out. That's just sort of table stakes, if you will. It's the bare minimum requirement. The second thing they look for is we like to avoid people who trend top. And this is a big thing in, in LA. I, I think for people in New York, like maybe this would be unfamiliar, but in LA, there are a lot of people that like last year, they were a life coach this year. There's some kind of web three oh, crypto no. expert. And I, I don't know what they're going to be next year. And I don't think they do either. I'm not trying to yeah. knock these people. It's just the caliber of people we bring into our network are not interested in short-term transactional relationships. They want long-term truly mutually beneficial, authentic relationships so that they can support each other's ambitions and not feel like there's some weird score being kept behind yeah. the scenes. 
these people that trend hop, I've just noticed that they tend to treat people with the same carelessness as they do their CV, if that makes sense. So mm -hmm. that's the second thing we avoid. And that cuts out a lot of people. You'd be surprised. Uh, third thing is we all live in this attention economy now, right? The best way to get attention is to be like, excuse my French, but kind of a dick, right? Yeah. A, a bit of a douche. And people become famous for being douchebags, especially on places like Twitter. So my team looks to make sure that people aren't exhibiting this type of behavior. Yeah. And it, because if you think about that, like if you're building an audience and you choose not to do this, you're actually losing money. You're losing followers. You're losing opportunities by not being a douchebag. So that tells us, okay, this person might share some of the values that we share. And they're simply not willing to compromise those values to get more attention and more money. So only after all of these three criteria are seen and those boxes are checked. And by the way, if we go through 500 people, we might be left with like 50, mm -hmm. 30 people at the yeah. end of this, it really whittles it down. And then our team reaches out, we start a conversation, right? People apply, by the way, if you're curious about like learning more about this, you can go to humangathering.com forward slash apply and check out the application process. It's a real application, right? I mean, we, we interact with the person, we get to know them. There's this entire vetting process that happens behind the scene and it takes a few days, but it's all over email, it's not crazy. And then ultimately myself and my co-founder make the final decision on every single person. And, and that's why I, I think that a lot of these private networks, and I, I want to be careful about naming names, but yeah, you know, you if you've got, to. if you got a hundred thousand members or 25,000 members, how are you supposed to do this? Right. I mean, people are basically nothing more than a, a line item on a balance sheet. Yeah. To you. you don't know who these people are. Right. So that's, that's how we do it. And look, it's not perfect every once in a while. You know, somebody who I would maybe call a, a bad apple might find their way in, but we're pretty good about check, you know, getting them out quickly. And that's what we look for. Right. I mean, it's funny, like everybody always talks about bad apple spoils the whole bunch, avoid the bad apples. But I've never heard anybody talk about what kind of apples we're supposed to be looking for as human right. beings, like good apples, like mediocre apples. No, like how about awesome apples? That's what I want. I want people like you that you're just like an awesome apple. As cheesy as that sounds like that's. That's I love being called an awesome apple. You are an awesome Very apple. Cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think it, it's so fascinating the way that your team has really screened for this integrity and character, mm -hmm. because I know you and I were talking about this in another conversation, you know, post COVID and with changes in large corporations and, you know, my own personal change too, right? I think everyone is making sure that whatever it is they're doing next and most of the world, as I've known it today and the network that I've been a part of, like, it's always like jumping on to the next thing. And am I going to join the right organization that is purpose driven and mm -hmm. that is aligned to what I value or do they have the right values? And so um, if companies aren't thinking about that today, I think now more than ever. And I feel like you and I keep having the same conversation, yeah. you know, is that now more than ever, business has to become personal. Oh, yeah. But personal in a way that um, it is about seeing that humankind, that humanity, you know, mm -hmm. as part of business, not yeah. the other way around. And I feel like the good news is, although there should never be good news coming out of a pandemic, is that I think companies realize that, wow, we actually have human beings who are at the center of everything that we do. Yes. And I think what everyone is looking for is what you're talking about. And this is this culture of you know, am I going to be safe? And am I going to be seen? Am I going to be heard? Um, and seen and heard, meaning I'm just not like yet another member, but mm -hmm. I can actually be productive and useful and helpful, yeah. you know? And I think that's yes. 
what I'm hearing you talk about. And like curious, so tell mm -hmm. me about like the human gathering and mm -hmm. some of the goodness that has happened as a result of sure. people who may kind of peripherally know each other, who now know each other and mm -hmm. what they've been able to accomplish. Absolutely. So, I mean, first and foremost, and I, I always like to reiter reiterate this to people, I'm a millennial, right? So I tried the whole being a martyr thing and save the world before you take care of yourself. We all do that, right? We all go through that phase. We millennials, we're a funny bunch, but it doesn't work, right? Like you've got to fill your own cup before you can help other people. So mandate number one for our members is to help them fill their cup and help each other fill their cup. Because if you're in a position where you're, I mean, you're like your network is like mine and you're essentially no more than one degree of separation from any person you'd ever want to talk to, no matter what industry or how powerful they think they are, you can do anything. I mean, you can weather any financial storm. You can learn from the mistakes and successes of some of the most successful people in the world. And you can actually collapse time itself, right? So for example, yeah. like if, if I'm doing a cool event, you know, like we've got a bunch of events and once in a lifetime experiences that our members get exclusive access to. Um, you're coming to one of them in Malibu, March 30th, April 1st. That'll be That's really right. fun. Um, if I want press for that, I don't hire a publicist. I, I don't hire a PR team. I don't go to, you know, some website, HuffingtonPost.com and submit a form. I, I just contact whoever the editor in chief is of whatever publication I want to get coverage in. So for me, because I have this network, I can get things done that typically will take people weeks to a month, typically in hours, if not sooner. Right. So that's, that's what I'm talking about when I say collapsing time in on itself. Yeah. And, and that's really important. So that's what the human gathering is first and foremost. But in terms of the goodness, I mean, we've done a lot of things and there's a lot in the works right now. I think that, um, you know, police brutality, for example, is on everybody's minds right now because of what happened with Tyree Nichols. And as you know, I'm very, very close friends with Rodney King's family, mm -hmm. have been for years, um, been actually talking to the media quite a bit over the past 10 days because they've been, you know, wanting to get in, talk, in contact with his daughter, Laura, who's one of my close friends. And um, that's that's a whole other thing. I mean, that's very difficult, you know, for these families to see and have this this wound ripped open over and over and over again. So when um, when what happened to George Floyd happened, uh, I wanted to tell a story. Right. Which was, you know, in 1991, Rodney King is beaten to the LAPD, almost beaten by the LAPD, almost to death. But at least he lived. Right. Mm -hmm. That's not what happened with George Floyd. So what we did was we brought together both of those families, Rodney King's family and George Floyd's family for the first time. We did that last Black History Month about a year ago. We took both families to Washington, D.C. Uh, we shut down the Smithsonian Museum of African-American History and Culture. We did a private tour with three generations of each family. Some of our members had the opportunity to experience that. Like, this is what I'm talking about when I say yeah. once in a lifetime experience, right? Um, and, you know, Time Magazine came and did a great article about that. And then I called my friends at Good Morning America and had them actually capture the first moment that these families met on camera and broadcast that on national television back in March on ABC. So, like, that's the story we try to tell. So, like, it's interesting. This is called CultureCast because ultimately what our network is interested in doing is putting our finger on culture itself and that's trying right. to move into a more positive direction. But I do want to be clear about one thing. We're very nonpartisan. You know, everything is so politically charged these days. Like we also have things going on to try to house all of the homeless veterans across the United States. We co-created like myself and some of our partners co-created the first ever expedition to the global seed vault. You and I are talking to those guys yeah, in like what, three right. hours, which is so that's funny. Right. right. So like that was, that was about trying to protect humanity's food supply. And we took Martha Stewart with us and 
executives from Facebook and Starbucks and, you know, like really interesting people. So our members get access to all of these crazy things, but those things usually have some kind of social good component. That's right. right. So we're working with an incredible anti-human trafficking organization right now called Operation Underground Railroad. Perhaps some of you have heard of them and we're doing a cool event, right? The members will pay to be a part of this event and, and all of the profit from that goes directly to OUR. To Operation Underground Railroad. So amazing. Um, yeah, it's kind of we can try just, to. Can I just pause you here because let's just recognize this again. You're putting the finger on in straight in the middle of culture in terms of like mm -hmm. what the human gathering is doing, and in just in recognition of um, Black History Month, day two, mm -hmm. right? You had an epic moment, right? Last year mm -hmm. in March. I mean, I remember seeing this. It was on Good Morning America. I read your Time Magazine article. Mm -hmm. The fact that you brought these families together, the Kings and the Floyds, for the first time, right? Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. creating that connection. Again, I think about that sense of community and creating uh, a culture of support, you know, for families that didn't even know each other, but have been through similar, like lived oh, yeah. through similar instances, just in different decades. I yeah. just want to recognize that that's when I, when I think about the goodness, like that is one ounce of a multitude of things that this amazing group of people that mm -hmm. you have been shepherding, I guess I use that word, mm -hmm. to really just find that goodness and culture and create that. And so anyway, really yeah. just mad props to you, dude. Oh, thank Seriously, you. It like, means a lot coming from you. It really does. Yeah, who, else, yeah. who else would be doing that is my bigger question. It's wild. Like, mm -hmm. I'm sure there are folks who are sitting here going, all right, so, um, and not to make this about color or race or anything. And like, mm -hmm. how is this dude right. like connected with these families? Like, I don't think he's black. I'm just going to say that. No, right? I mean, like, maybe you can tell. Like, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. can you, right? <laughs> yeah. So I think it's just because you believe in goodness and that when you put that out there. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I can share that. why, because it's yeah. a good question. It's, it's yeah. an important question that I think people ought to ask. I asked myself when I decided to do this, like, is it even my position to do something like this? Is this even okay? You know, and then I talked to like, we're working on something else in stealth mode right now that you know about and you're involved in with yeah. like, Frederick Douglass's family and Rosa Parks yep. family, and a lot of these other families, I went directly to one of my best friends, who's the great, great, great grandson of Frederick Douglass and asked him, should I even do this? You know, but the reason um, is that, you know, I grew up where I grew up and I was the only really white kid around. Yeah. All my other friends were people of color. My best friend, <laughs> Jared, I'll try to get through this without getting emotional. Um, he got completely different feedback from society because he was black. He and I would go to the mall and immediately any store we went into, it was like the, the employees would just yeah. descend upon him and ask like, hey, can we help you find something? You know, not because they wanted to be helpful, but because they just assumed, oh, you're black. Yeah. Therefore, you're more at risk to steal something than yeah. this Larry Bird looking guy next to you. Right. And so like, do you know how many times that's happened to me? Never. Not once. So when, when people say that, like people of color have not experienced racism, which I, I don't hear that too often, but I, I used to in recent years. Um, I always tell them like, you have no clue what you're talking about. Yeah. I watched it happen to my best friends, all of them over and over and over and over again, hundreds if not thousands of times. And my friend Jared, like he's really struggled. I mean, he's had drug addiction problems. Yeah. He's been homeless. I don't really know if he's alive or dead right now, to, to be totally honest. The last time I heard he was somewhere in Texas and in rehab, he was homeless and, you know, 
I, I don't know what's going on. No one knows where he is. He came from the same background, same neighborhood. Only difference was our skin color. So it's like, how, how, how can I not do this? Like if I, if I have the ability to do this, it's incumbent upon me to do this. And what I try to do to the degree that I can is just sort of fade into the background, if that makes sense, and not make it about me, not make it about us, but make it about these families, make yeah. it about them, give them the spotlight, give them the limelight. Like if you, if you find the Good Morning America coverage, you won't see my name or even the Human Gatherings name in any of that. Like we kept it out intentionally. Um, we don't always do that because like, we're a company, right? Like you've, right. you've got to get press, you yeah. got to get attention. But generally speaking, most of the good we try to do in the world, we don't talk about 90% of it at all because it's not about that. We're not doing it to get attention. We're doing it to do it, if that makes sense. Yeah, so that's, I think, yeah. And I think yeah. it's, I think about even getting you to be on this culture cast because you are a behind the scenes kind of blend in the background mm -hmm. kind of guy. And I get it that it's the ethos of the human gathering. I also feel that all the good people who are sitting in on this culture cast want to know about it because mm -hmm. why people need to know that good things are happening in the world and they want to tap into a real way of being part of it. You know, and I think about this, creating this culture and this connection. Um, so not to like fully blast it, like mm -hmm. let's put it on full blast, but people need to know about it, dude. I, yeah. I just think so. And I, I know you, like, I appreciate the fact that you are on here. And putting yourself out there because that's not who you are. You're like oh, more of one-on-one -on -one kind of guy, mm -hmm. making yeah. sure people are taken care of and connected. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. um, I appreciate that you are spending that time. Since we are Absolutely. calling this a culture cast, and I know that you're like, hey, what we're trying to do is put our finger on the culture. How yep. would you define culture? Like to you, what does that mean? Oh God, that's a good question. Um, it makes me think of the Beethoven quote that I probably butchered, right? Which is that music is the one universal language. Okay. I think culture is the way that human beings communicate with each other without having to talk to each other, right? It's sort of the, it's the water that we all swim in, right? If we were fish, that's what it would be. But, but we have this unique ability as human beings to perceive it. So it's a way of communicating with other human beings and figuring out like, you know, culture, culture is, is sort of both macro and micro, right? Like you built Chipotle's entire culture. You're a culture master. That was a micro culture. There's the macro culture yeah. outside of that, right? There's like, there's hip hop culture. There's indie culture. There's at one time emo culture, which was yep. super weird, but I was a part of that. There's I used to have like this culture, ridiculous hair. Yeah, <laughs> right. So like, I think that's what it is. It's a way of um, people plugging into each other and sort of like, we all, I think at the end of the day, all human beings want to know. And I think this is how we evolved. It's just going to be okay, right? Like, that's yeah. why when, when you're in public and somebody smiles at you, if it's genuine and it's not weird, it's just like warms you up inside. It's because it's like, it's going to be okay. Like you're okay. And, and I think that's what culture is about for me really is those things. I love that. And I think we've talked about so many defining moments of cultures that you've been a part of, whether it's the music scene mm -hmm. um, and or being part of other social networks and then being this goodness network. Um, I know there's a lot of people here who are also trying to make an impact and make a difference in culture. What is the one piece of advice? Like what is one actionable thing that mm -hmm. anyone listening in right now, watching, watching you, like what is one piece of advice you would give them to go and put their imprint in the, in culture? Yeah. I mean, I would say show up first of all, don't be afraid to show up. Don't be afraid to look stupid as I, as I have many times in my life, and I'm sure I will again. Um, 
you know, be who you are, right? Have the, um, not courage, but have the grace for yourself to be who you are because culture ultimately comes from people just like anything else, right? I mean, you said this earlier, Marisa, yeah. we were talking before this, this idea that like, oh, it's, sorry, it's not personal, it's just business, that's such BS, right? Because unless you're talking about chat GPT or AI, <laughs> there's a person behind yeah. that business. And I think culture is exactly the same, just get into it, you know? I, I mean, I accidentally stumbled into being a part of making a lot of cultures happen that came out of the work we did in the music industry because I showed up, you know, because I was willing yeah. to be there really honestly, like it, it wasn't anything more than that. I don't think I'm a particularly special person. I think I'm just a person who's okay with trying things and failing. And if you fail enough times, that's, that's when you find success for yourself. And, and that's for me is what it's about is just put yourself out there participate in the culture, be a part of it, right? If, if, if you push culture, it pushes back That's out right. the other side and you can influence, you can influence it. You as an individual, I mean, look at, look at how the news cycle works in, in this country and in the Western world in general, somebody who, you know, like Bridget Floyd, George Floyd's sister, who's a friend of mine now, um, she's had a massive influence on our culture. Does, which, does she want it? Probably not, right? She'd probably have her brother, rather have her brother back, but she also had yeah. the courage to step up, right? Yeah. So I think that's it. You just got to show up. Yeah. I love this. You've got to show up. And Caroline, I see you too. And I know we need to connect. Um, and she just quoted you back. I was going to say this too, the grace to be who you are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I say this all the time. And actually, I don't say this all the time. You and I talked about this weeks ago, but one of my mentors, I don't think Dan's on here, but Dan Ginsburg, who was the CEO of Red Bull, you know, I was having a really tough time after I left Red Bull. And I was like in this really huge job, moved out of California and was getting a lot of shit, right? From people who were like, well, you dress differently, you talk differently, et cetera. I'm like, well, yeah, I'm a female amongst all these dudes. And yeah. yes, I'm not from this part of the country, right? And I would call him and go, oh my God, they're just giving me such grief. And he's like, here's the deal, Marisa. And he's just like, um, they need you because they've got, you've got this great experience, but it's really the beauty of your talent is who you are. Hmm. And hmm. that resonates for me. And when I hear you talk about culture, this to me is um, of what it means to be inclusive and diverse at the same time, which is really be accepting of what people can add because we may not have it yet. And that's what we're missing. And so I yes. think the world misses out when people feel like they have to click along or snap mm -hmm. into what everyone else don't is snap doing. into. No, I mean, yeah. look, like, what's that saying? Be yourself because everyone else is already taken. It's a yeah, cliche, yep. but it's a cliche because it's true. I'll tell you if we have time. One very, very quick story sure. that really illustrates this point. So, one of the artists that came out of our shows that we helped break was Skrillex. If anyone knows who he is or remembers him, at one time he was like the biggest DJ yeah. on the planet. Totally insane. So, I ended up accidentally like sort of being a small part of making dubstep happen, like the whole genre. We used to do back-to-back -back nights at Cinespace with Steve Aoki before anyone knew who Steve Aoki was. And Sonny Skrillex, like he went to school with one of my friends. So we started bringing him out to Cinespace back when like maybe 20 people would show up. Nobody knew who he was, right, at the yeah. time. And they didn't understand that he was in this band from first to last before. So he was just like, it was new. Dubstep didn't, it wasn't really like a thing in the States yet, you know, maybe in like in Eastern Europe or Russia, whatever. But what I watched happen was truly remarkable. It was the reaction 
of the of the young the kids right like the 20 somethings who would come to our shows which i guess i was a kid at the time too but i've always felt much older than my age so <laughs> it is what it is but people reacted right because it was new it was new and and it just it really impacted people and we went from 20 people showing up the first time we brought them out to i think the third time the fire marshal almost shut us down because we had so many people packed into this little club and people were freaking out i mean he was he was a phenomenon for a while. And this is the thing is this is what ties back into what you and I were talking about. People will always ask me like, who's going to be the next big artist, right? Like who's going to be the next Skrillex? Who's going to be the next fill in the blank? I always tell people like, I have no idea. Neither does anyone else, but I do know one thing. They're going to be nothing like that person. They're going to be nothing like Skrillex. Like That's the right. next Beyonce is going to be nothing like Beyonce. So if, if you try to be... Uh, and I always tell artists and bands this, if you try to be like some version of like Imagine Dragons meets, I don't know, some other artists, like it's not going to work because it's not unique. You've got to be new, unique and good. And I get it. Like it's hard. It's difficult to be unique and good. Uh, it's very, it's easy to be unique and bad, right? It's easy yeah. to be good and not unique. But if that's the only chance you have as an artist, and I would say even as a human being to, to fully realize your potential is to be unique and take the risk that you might not be good at first, right? And that's one of the things I love about you. You're so unique and people feel that, right? Every single person I've, I just texted you this earlier, every person yeah. I've introduced you to, which has been a lot of people recently and I'm, I'm not done. Like I said to you the other night, you know, if it becomes overwhelming, tell me to stop. But not everybody even. just keeps talking about how incredible you are. And it's because you are who you are and you don't hide it. And that's where all the magic in life is found as far as I'm concerned. Oh my gosh, I'm feeling a lot of warmth and goodness. Thank you so much for mm -hmm. spreading that love to me directly here, but also sharing that story for everybody else that they should just feel it themselves and you know, you do you, boo, everyone who's on yeah. here. I know we've got like, I have one closing question. I always love to kind of end in pop culture. Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna ask you what you're wearing, but since we are talking about mm -hmm. music, all right, and I know, I maybe know the answer to this, but who on this, on this culture cast does like, what are you listening to these days? Like, what is your mm. top? I'm going to just narrow it down like to your top five. Oh God, that's a really hard question. So, yeah. I mean, now you're getting into my, my wheelhouse, right? So uh, I don't know that I could answer a top five. How about this? Okay. I'll give you some really cool new artists okay, that maybe cool. some people have heard of, but you're about to hear about these people if you haven't already. So I think most people know about Illenium. Illenium's new album is awesome. Yes, it's going to be dude. really, really good. Yeah, really good. So good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, amazing songs on there. Great one with Skylar Gray. Skylar Gray is like kind of starting to break out now. She used to be somebody that you'd only know if you were like an industry insider, but she's breaking out. There's an incredible new all-female band called Joseph, and they have a song called Nervous System. So like, seriously, Joseph, Nervous System, that song is so catchy, it's ridiculous. If they keep writing hits like this, they're going to be like the next Haim, like the next big, like really cool band. Uh, there's a really interesting band that's been around for a while called Fever Ray that's starting to break out. They've been around for like maybe 13, 15 years. Oh, wow. They have a song called Candy, K-A-N-D-Y. So Fever Ray, Candy. Um, bizarre, but in the best way. Like one of those bands that if if they're going to perform at South by, you know, South by Southwest, like they would be the one I would say, like go to their show. You know, they're super interesting. Um, what else? Dem Bob Happy is really cool. Uh, D E M 
D-M-O-B, sorry, Demob, Happy, H-A-P-P-Y. They have a song called Voodoo Signs that I really like. Other than that, like I, I love 80s music. I, I love all kinds of music. Like I'm yeah. weird. Like I'll, if, if you and I ever go on a drive together, which we need to do, um, one song will be like from Mahler's Fifth Symphony. And then the nice. next one will be like uh, a Slayer song or some death metal music, right? And then after that, it's like some bubblegum pop record. And it's just, it's- Oh, I think I know that. I think I've, I was listening to a new playlist recently, mm -hmm. as you're aware. Oh, right, right. But yes, yeah, that's right. Be, yeah. yeah, there will be a long drive yeah. between the OC and Western Bootown coming yeah. up in our future. Mm -hmm. um, I know we're coming up to the top of the hour. Thank you so much for everyone who has hung out. I know that everyone- really wants just to get more of you. And I'm loving all these these terms that you've coined, Joshua, the whole awesome apple. I think people awesome are apples, referencing yeah. apples on here in a good way. Mm -hmm. um, but I want to just give my gratitude to you for putting yourself out there, which you normally don't. Yeah, um, and sharing just an insight into what it's like to be you, but also what it is you're trying to accomplish in this world. And you know, make a difference, you know, and I'm going to say this right now. I know everyone on here. I mean, come and be part of this movement, right? Mm -hmm. It's this movement for goodness that's happening. And so um, I want to yeah. thank you, Joshua. And I know everybody, Puxatani Phil did see his shadow this morning on the East Coast. That means six more weeks of winter. So uh, my only ask of everyone on here is please send out that warmth. People need it. Yes. 100%. Yeah, it's so great to meet everybody. If, if you want to know more about what we're up to, you can just go to humangathering.com and check us out. You know, lots of cool people. And um, it's been amazing hanging out with all of you guys for the past hour. Marisa, thank you so much. This has been thank really fun. Thank you so much. All right, everybody. We will see you later. Bye, everyone. Cheers.